Yeah, so uh, none of you paid attention to anything that was just said because there's two people up here on the platform and you're wondering what in the world's going on, right? For those of you who don't know, this is Nikki and Shannon Copeland. And um, I brought them up here today because June 1 is the anniversary date of Nikki working here at Grace Point for the second time um, for 10 years. So this is her 10-year anniversary. She did not want to come up here and do this. Uh, Nikki, um, or Shannon, um, is the hunter, fisher. He's the outside guy. Nikki is a gardener. She's not a, she's not a green thumb. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Nikki has spent the majority of her adult life planting God's word in kids' hearts. And as many of you know, if you're parents, you know the seeds that you plant in your kids, sometimes you don't see until years later. Um, well, I brought Nikki up here um, because I wanted you to honor her for those 10 years of service. It's actually more like 20, though, if you put it all together, right? Like 17, 18, like most of her life. Yes. I said that first service. She went to raise her own children the first time and then, um, and then came back um, to, to join our staff. So Nikki and Shannon um, have been um, the most faithful, um, God-honoring um, people, some of the most faithful God-honoring people that I know. Um, we love you guys. Um, Nikki, I don't know if I can say this without getting emotional. Nick, oof. Nikki is one of the reasons that my son wants to go into ministry because of the investment that she made into him. So she's um, special to me. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But we have a gift for you. This is not from me. This is from the church. Um, We love you guys. Thank you for... 10 plus whatever else before you didn't get fired um, all the time and investment you made in us. But guys, would you honor Shannon and Nikki? You're welcome. You're welcome. Shannon's got to get back to the sound booth, and Nikki's got to get downstairs. So, and I need that card back so we can do it again, third service. Thank you. Thank you. So, welcome to uh, the downhill side of this series. Um, This is part four of the, the Far From Perfect family, and we've just kind of been tracking through Um, one of the very first family narratives of the Bible, right? And and seeing that um, sometimes even if God is at work and and moving and his plan is being fulfilled through all of that, um, family's still kind of messy. Family's a little bit complicated and sometimes it even takes a little bit of explaining. Um, in, In my own family, I have a younger or I have an older sister I have a younger sister, I have a younger brother. Uh, my younger sister, Leslie, actually married my wife's cousin, okay? Then it was actually about six months after Janet and got, I got married. So within a few months, my wife moved from Jana Colaw to Jana Hughes, and my sister moved from Leslie Hughes to Leslie Colaw. 
and became not just my sister, but my cousin by marriage. <laughs> right? And to make matters even worse, she married Mike Kolaw. My wife's older brother's name is Mike Kolaw. Different Mike Kolaw. They're related but completely different, Mike Kolaw. So whenever we meet people who know my sister and her husband and know Jana's older brother, Mike, we have to explain some stuff so they don't think we're from, you know, Genesis or something like that. <laughs> and, and some of you can identify with this, right? Like somebody comes to you and says, hey, how many kids do you have? And you go, okay, do you want the long answer or the short answer? Because the answer is four but it's also one, right? Because your, your wife brought in two kids from a previous marriage. You brought in one from a previous marriage and you have one together, kind of a yours, mine, ours type of thing. So the answer is four, but it's one. Family can sometimes take a little bit of explaining and family can be a little bit complicated at times. So this is the level of explaining that it takes to work through the Jacob family. And today, the story is going to shift away from Jacob to Jacob's kids. And we're going to see some of this, some of this mess, some of this drama, just kind of unfold in the next generation. So before we do that, we kind of need to tra- retrace some of our steps. Okay, so this family, dealing with a lot of hurt. And I think that's an, that's an understatement. Um, Esau is hurt because Jacob stole his blessing. He also stole his birthright, but we didn't really talk about that. Um, uh, Jacob was hurt when Laban tricked him into marrying Leah before he gave him Rachel. Leah is hurt because she doesn't have the love of her husband. Rachel's hurt because she can't have kids and her sister Leah can. And and as we, we go through this today, as we look at the kids, it's almost like all of that hurt with the, you know, the, the adults, gets passed down to the kids. Aren't you so glad that human nature has progressed to the point where that doesn't happen anymore? <laughs> this is a human story. It's a divine story, but it's a human story. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Here's the, a table showing the Leah and Rachel um, offspring. So we've already seen that Leah's firstborn is Reuben. She names him that, hoping that her husband will love her. Uh, then she has Simeon and then Levi, hoping that Jacob will see her, right? And then she has Judah, and, and the, the tone changes. If you were here a few weeks ago when Nikki talked about this, instead of the name of the child pointing towards what Leah needed from Jacob, it points towards, the, I'll praise the Lord. It, it, it moves, and that could be a good thing, but it can also kind of show that, that Jacob or Judah's birth, maybe she's just kind of given up on her husband looking on her with any kind of affection or, or tenderness. So Leah is hurt. Meanwhile, Rachel is going through a season of infertility, and if you think she's okay with that because she has the love of her husband, you'd be wrong. In fact, the text tells us that, that Rachel is so envious, so jealous of Leah, that she goes to Jacob and says, give me a child or I'll die. Do you think she was dealing with any emotional baggage there? Think there's any hurt in her heart? So, so there's a practice in, in ancient Eastern cultures that seems kind of strange to us today, but was common to them. If you had a servant, 
you would, you would take that servant to your husband, and if that servant had a child, that would be considered your child. It's basically a surrogate mother. And Rachel has a servant by the name of Bilhah. Bilhah ta- takes, her, or takes her to Jacob and says, I want children, make it happen. Bilhah and Jacob make it happen. Bilhah produces two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And you start to go, could it get any more complex and complicated? Actually, yes. Yes, it can. Leah goes through a period of infertility, but she has a servant too. Her name is Zilpah. She has Gad and Asher. So this is where the family sits now. So here's where we move from the parents to the kids. Do you think that these kids know what's going on? Maybe not when they're really young, but as they grow up, do you think these boys have figured out who's loved and who's not? Do you think that they know who's the favorite and who isn't? Actually, um, Reuben the oldest kid, uh, one day he's out in the fields um, harvesting some grain. He finds um, a mandrake plant. Now, mandrakes back in the day, um, believed they, they believed they had fertility-boosting capability. This is not a mandrake. This is a stunt double. It's a plastic plant from my house. <laughs> so, on a budget here, people. But he finds this plant. And he's going to take it to one of his parents. Now, if you know the story, you know where he's going to take it. So don't say it out loud. Which parent do you think he's going to take it to? Is he going to take it to Jacob or is he going to take it to Leah? Here it is. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out to the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? So all I want you to see here, all I want you to notice is here, the kids are getting in on the action. Reuben, the oldest, he knows what's happening. He doesn't take this mandrake plant to his dad. He takes it to his mom. He knows his mom is trying to earn the love of Jacob, and he's willing to do whatever he can to help. Leah eventually produces two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. So for those of you keeping score at home, Leah's side has eight, Rachel's side has two. It's eight to two. But another way you can look at this is everybody else 10, Rachel zero. Then we find this in Genesis 30, 23. She, talking about Rachel, became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. Listen to those words. God has taken away my shame. He's given me a child. What does she name him? She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. This is that Joseph, the coat of many colors, Joseph, the technicolor dream coat, Joseph. Right? Now, when Joseph is 17, something's going to happen in this family, major fallout, but we just, I just need you to understand the problem started years before he turned 17. The problem started years before the firstborn was even born. This, this, it, there's a mess, there's brokenness, it's all kinds of things going on. So the family table looks like this, and there's just no other way to say this. Joseph is Jacob's favorite. He's his favorite. In fact, we're told last week um, 
We looked at the story of Jacob coming home. If you remember that, Jacob um, is on his way home. He's not just on his way home. He's on his way home to face his twin brother that he ripped off 20 years before. So the question in the back of Jacob's mind as he goes home is, has Esau's anger dissipated? And, And on his way, Jacob hears that Esau is coming out to meet him with how many of his closest hunting buddies? 400. 400. It's going to end up being a really large welcome home party. But to Jacob, he thinks he's, he's coming to slaughter my entire family. So he goes out to meet Esau. His family's behind him. I want you to see how Jacob arranges his family and in what order. Look at this. He put the female servants and their children in front. That's Bilhah and Silpah. Leah and her children next. And Rachel and Joseph in the rear. So if this turns into a bloodbath, maybe my favorite wife and son can get away while everyone else is slaughtered. Again, do you think the other boys came to some conclusions about who was valued and who wasn't that day? Do do you think they realized who was expendable and who wasn't? Who, Who counted and who didn't? And some of you, in a room this size, just left the Jacob story and went into your own. Because you hear about kids who counted and who didn't, who were expendable and who weren't, and you start to go into some memories of your own. The father you never really knew. The the, the parent with volcanic, alcoholic rage the divorce where you got caught in the middle, the remarriage where you got caught in the middle, and as your mom and your dad or both were dealing with their own stuff, you were left wondering, do I count? Am I just expendable? Am I just, do I just need to figure this out on my own? And we're not even touching some of the terrible abuse some of you faced. Family is not emotionally neutral. Family can be a place of of belonging and and blessing, and family can produce a world of hurt that just travels with us through the rest of our lives. And what I want to say to you is to be careful what you do with that hurt. Be careful where you let that hurt take you. Because if we're not careful, hurt turns into hate. That's exactly where this family goes. It moves from hurt to hate. So fast forward the tape, a bunch of years. Joseph, uh, after Joseph is born, Rachel has another son. His name is Benjamin. He comes much later. Um, Rachel actually dies during childbirth. Um, Benjamin grows up. He's too young to be out in the field with the older brothers. The older brothers are out kind of watching the flocks, taking care of the family business. This is what we find in Genesis 37.1. Joseph, a young man of 17, that's important. Think about the 17-year-old boys you know. Just let it sit there, Okay. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. 
So they're out in the countryside for who knows how long. They get back home. Jacob goes to dad. Dad, they don't take care of the livestock like we take care of the livestock. (laughs) They don't take care of our investments the way we take care of our investments. Dad, they don't care about our family name like we care about our family name. It becomes a bonding experience between he and his dad. Next verse, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. This is the robe. This is the long, multicolored, very expensive robe, okay? And, and one of the tragedies of Joseph's story is that that robe gets attached to him and that's what his story is about. But the point of the robe is not that Jacob gives it to Joseph. The point of the robe is that there are 11 other brothers that didn't get one. That's the point. And I used the word hate earlier. That's the word that we find in the text. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. By the way, that phrase um, in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, is almost word for word the same as what we read earlier, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So all of that stuff, all of that, am I valued? Am I loved? Am, am I expendable? All that stuff that happened to the wives has now been passed down to the kids. It's, it's, it's gone into the next generation. And that's before the dreams have even started. Because Joseph has a dream. And remember, he's a 17-year-old boy. He has this dream one night. And he goes to his brothers the next day and says, guys, you are not going to believe this. I had this dream that we were out in the fields harvesting the wheat and bundling it up. And, and while we were doing this, my bundle just it stood upright. And all y'all's bundles started bowing down to mine. Isn't that the craziest thing? This is what 17-year-olds do, right? His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he has said. He hurt. (laughs) It's transitioned to hate. It just has. And and before we move on the story, just a question to consider. Who got the coat that you wanted? Who got the coat in your family that you wanted? So she's in the same room as her sister, right? And on her dresser is a couple trinkets. On her sister's dresser is a shrine to superior athletic ability. Ribbons, trophies, medals, articles, all conference, all district, all state, all intergalactic athletic hero. (laughs) What does that little sister grow up hearing? Are you going to grow up and play softball like your sister? And she thinks to herself, yeah, I'd like to grow up and play softball, but nobody plays softball like my sister. Who got the coat? Let's bring, it, let's bring it into some of your lives. Every time you go to your brother-in-law's house, you're reminded that they've arrived and you haven't. You pull into their driveway and the GPS says, you've arrived at your destination. You think, no, I haven't, but they have. 
And they're not showy, they're not flashy, they're not pushy, but just everything about the house, the house, the pool, the cars, the landscaping, everything. It just screams, they've arrived, and I haven't. Because they got the coat. Who got the coat that you wanted? Again, you've got to be careful where your heart goes when you realize that. King Solomon, Proverbs, above all else, priority number one, above all else, guard your heart. Because it's from that place that you live. Everything else flows. It's the wellspring of life. Be careful where you go, what you do, what you think when you realize that. Pay a close attention to your heart and discern if hurt is transitioning into hate. Why? Because if you're not careful, those who are hurt and it turns to hate, all of that flows back to hurt, right? Maybe it looks something like this. I think we've all heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. People who are hurt and don't heal, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying they're justified. I'm just saying it shouldn't surprise us that they turn around and then hurt people. So Joseph, 17, 10 older brothers, 50 miles to the north, taking care of the family flocks. Israel says to Joseph, I want you to go and check up on your brothers, find out how they're doing, find out how our assets are doing. When he gets there, he can't find them. Somebody says they're about 15 miles further north in Dothan. So Joseph is 65 miles away from home. His brothers see him coming and they start plotting. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in his family? Even the plotting has been passed down from generation to generation. Genesis 37, 19, they're in the middle of nowhere. No witnesses. Years and years and years of being overlooked and undervalued, feeling like they're expendable. It should not surprise us what happens. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. You feel the hurt dripping off of their words? Reuben, the oldest, the wisest, the most seasoned, speaks up and says, no, 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 don't kill him. Let's toss him into a cistern and let him die of natural causes. Because Reuben wants to come back later pull him out and take him back to his dad. And we don't know why, but for some reason, Reuben goes somewhere. And the, the guys are sitting around talking about this. They see a caravan coming by, heading towards Egypt. And Judah, Leah's number four son, says, hey, why let him die here? Let's sell him into slavery. At least we'll have something to show for it then. I mean, after all, he is our brother. Like kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And that's exactly what they do for 20 pieces of silver, two pieces each for the 10 older brothers. Take, they take the coat, smear it in goat's blood, take it to their dad. Dad, we found this. Is this your son's coat? It was an Oscar-worthy performance because Jacob bought it. He believed Joseph, his favorite son, was dead. And the text tells us none of his kids could console him and he thought he would mourn for the rest of his life. And there's, this is not in the text, but I just imagine if you spent some time with those brothers a few months later, 
and just ask them, hey guys, like, how do you feel about what you did? Is there any remorse? You feel, feel any kind of guilt? I wonder if Asher and Levi and Dan and Naphtali and even Judah would look at you and say, that kid got what he deserved. And I'd do it again. Our, our dad never loved our mom like he loved his mom. Our dad never loved us like he loved him. So yeah, I'm glad we did it. And I'd do it again. See, this is the dangerous part of family hurt. The dangerous part of family hurt is when we are deeply hurt and it turns to hate, we feel like we can justify pretty much anything. We feel like we can justify our feelings. We feel like we can justify our actions because, hey, they, they hurt me. In fact, here in a couple weeks, Pastor Mark is going to walk us through a series on forgiveness. But I just want to remind you of something we've talked about before. This is from um, Lewis Smedes, who wrote a great book called The Art of Forgiving. And I've, I've, I've put this before you before. I want to put it before you again because I think there are some things we just need to come back to like every 12 minutes. Okay, this, is what, this is what he says. Hate is the most self-righteous of all emotions. We feel deliriously righteous when we hate the evil creature who viciously assaulted us. No one ever feels the pleasure of self-righteousness with such lip-smacking satisfaction as a person chewing on his own hate. What Smeeds is warning us against here is not only that we will hate, but we will hate and we'll feel right. We, we actually convince ourselves that we're justified in our hatred of the other person. But let it settle in for a while, take over the best rooms in our souls, and it becomes a disagreeable guest who will not leave when our party is over. See, hate doesn't quarantine well. You say, no, I just hate him. No, I just hate her. No, I just hate those two. Hate doesn't stay there. It spreads. And, 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 and invite it in, allow it to stay. It becomes a disagreeable guest that will not leave when we want it to and hate it long enough or, or let hate sit in you for long enough without weeding it out of your heart and you'll wake up one day and just discover you're just mean. You're just bitter. We have to be. We have to be about the work of the business of healing from our hurt if for no other reason so we don't wake up one day to realize we're just a bitter, angry old person <laughs> alienating the people around us because hate refused to leave when we wanted to. Now, is healing complex and multifaceted? Yes, it is way harder than I'm making it sound. The people who do what I do tend to just throw a couple verses out there and we'll just do this. And, and what I want to say, what I want you to hear is that God's word is powerful and effective and can bring about healing in ways that nothing else can. And it can also be a wonderful guide down the path of healing that may involve other things as well. 
like counseling, like discipleship, like accountability, like prayer, like spiritual discipline. So I want you to hear this in the back of your head as I read Ephesians 5.1, okay? Paul writes this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now remember, this is the first verse of the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Paul is getting ready to walk into what it looks like to live in relationship with family members inside of a Christian worldview. This is what he says first. So Paul, in the Ephesus church, there's people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of hurt, and all kinds of things. And Paul says, I want you to walk in the way of love. But he focuses the entire thing around the way that Christ, two words, love and gave himself for us. That's what he's focusing on. So if, if, I, could, if I could say this as clearly as I can, if you've come to comprehend what Jesus did for you, if you've accepted that, the sacrifice that he made on the cross on your behalf, your most defining moment is what somebody did for you, not what somebody did to you. As painful as it was, as painful as it still is, for the follower of Jesus, if you've come to know his grace, what was done for you, there just comes a point where that defines you far more than what was done to you. Paul is calling these people to a different story. He's, he's calling them to leave the story of hurt and hate behind and enter into the story of grace that's both received and given. That's a better story. <laughs> it's a better story for you. It's a better story for your family than the story of hurt and hate and hurt. And most of us, when we think about when we're on our, our deathbed, that's the story we want to be able to tell, especially with the people that are closest to us. I would love for some of you to walk away today. Write this down where you can see it regularly. What was done for me is far more powerful than what was done to me. My core identity is what God did for me as God's dearly loved child. He loved me. He gave himself for me. It's so much more powerful. It's so much more identifying to you than what was done to you. So for me, the most beautiful part of this story that's transitioning from Jacob to Jacob's kids is the last one of chapter 37. It says this, meanwhile, so meanwhile, while Jacob was mourning for his son, never thought, thought he'd never see him again. While the, the rest of the boys thought they got away with it. All of that was going on. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It's, it's a beautiful verse to me for two reasons. Number one, because I've read ahead and I know what happens. But number two, I think it's beautiful because we're being told it looks really bad right now but this isn't the end of the story. And it's not. It's not. I really, really need you to come back next week. 
because this is not the end of the story. The family soap opera, the mess, the hurt, the pain, the rejection, this story is not over yet. It's not over for Joseph. It's not over for Jacob. It's not over for Joseph's brothers. And the story, in the same way, is not over for your family either. It's not over. It's beautiful to me. Because the best part of the story happens after this verse. That, that, that this is a great story, it's just got a lot of mess in it. It's a great story with a lot of brokenness in it. It's a great story because God is telling a story through a far from perfect family. And it's actually not even about the family. It's about him. The same is true for you. God is writing a story in your family. I, I hate to break this to you, but 100 years from now, 200 years from now, nobody's going to remember your name. Your great-great-grandkids, they're not going to remember your name. But God will still be writing a story through your family. What if, what if the story of your family is not the story of your family? What if it's about him? What if it's his story? And he's just telling a really good story. (laughs) with a lot of messy parts. That's a different perspective. That's a different worldview. It's a different way to approach your far from perfect family. So hope you come back next week as we journey with Joseph to Egypt and all of the fun stuff that happens there. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, this... um, This lands in so many different places because we're coming from so many different places. There's so many different family dynamics that are represented here in this room. So my prayer is that you would, through your spirit, by the power of your word, give us the wisdom to know what to do with what you have just spoken, the courage to walk out of these doors and to do it, the vision, the discernment to know what's going on in our hearts and then to guard it by any means possible. Because we want, we want to be people who understand and live in the reality that it's not, it's not really our story. <laughs> it's our family. You've blessed us with us. There's belonging, there's love, there's care, there's so many things. But it's, it's not about us. It's you, it's your story, it's your history. So Father, help us to to live into that, to know what to do with that, to make adjustments as necessary. And we'll do this for your glory, not our own, for your honor, and and ultimately for, for our good. We know it's for our good. You came to give us abundant life. So help us, show us, lead us, direct us into that abundant life. And we'll give you praise. I ask it all in Jesus' name.